Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hi, I'm Nicole Ryan from Alex's Adventure, and you are listening to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. Thank you very much indeed, Nicole. It's great having you on the series. Um, we, we had a recommendation for you to be on this series from Will Hogg, who I have great respect for Will, and he did a brilliant podcast. It was a lot of fun, and we just bantered away as if we were sort of sitting in the kitchen together. And um, he, he's the MD at Kinetic, as you know, and he just said, you've got to have Nicole Ryan on from Alex's Adventures. He's j- just inspirational woman. She's a young lady, but she's got so much experience already, packed it in. So Nicole, welcome. And I'd love to hear about your current role, why you set this up and, and the tragedy that you've turned into helping other people. So would you tell us about uh, why you do what you do. Of course, and thank you, Jonathan, for having me. Uh, no pressure, <laughs> but yes, I set up Alex's Adventure, which is a drug education company that helps young people and parents learn about substance misuse and helps them kind of get in, out of the way of danger when it comes to drugs. Um, I set it up in 2016 after tragically losing my brother, Alex, who was 18 at the time. He went to a party, he took a substance, and unfortunately he died four days later. So after that, I embarked on my own adventure and used his story as a catalyst for a journey. Yeah, and, and I don't think I, I can hear it in your voice. I don't think you ever get over it really, do you? No, it's not something you get over. It's something like you, you just get stronger. You do. You get stronger over time. Yeah. And if Alex was with us now, what would he be saying to you about what you've done and what he wants you to do? Firstly, he would be stunned. He would be like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. One thing my brother always used to say when uh, as we were growing up is that he'd always be famous. He always said that he's like, I'm going to be famous one day. (laughs) And I used to always question him, like, what are you going to do? You know, you, you know, are you going to play music or whatever? And he said, I just don't know but one day I'm going to be famous. <laughs> and it's kind of, you know, it's, it's funny, but it's also a little bit sad that he is now well-known, but he's just not here to see that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, a sad believer. I'm not a sad believer, but just a believer that, like, you know, my father was killed when I was three, but I just somehow feel he's here. I mean, his DNA is in me and, and Alex's DNA is in you. So I, I think he is seeing what's going on and he is realizing that he's very famous and um a lot of people it's not during their lifetime that they become famous it's often after their lifetime or in the memory of somebody so congratulations on doing that and tell me you know take us back to your upbringing with alex and and your parents who are very interesting and where you live in cork in ireland just just give us a little bit of your your life journey and and what you learned on the way which is just useful life lessons for others. And particularly from such a a grief of losing your brother, but yet so much good has come from it. Yeah, of course. I guess my life story is a little bit, um, sometimes I think of it as bizarre because from a young age, my parents are very young. My mother, she is Russian and my father, he's Brazilian. So he's of Brazilian Portuguese descent. And they had me when I was very young And then they had my brother and unfortunately my father left. So my mother was a single parent on her own, raising two kids. And during our lifetime, it was always me and my brother against the world. It was always the two of us. And as we were kind of, I was around seven or so, we were, my mother had, you know, met somebody else. And unfortunately she was a victim to domestic violence. So we would have grown up in quite a difficult household as young kids but I would have taken on this protective role of Alex as kind of both his sibling and his second mom. 
So we got through that as a family. Um, we live in a small community in North Cork in the south of Ireland. We're just a little community, you know, that real sense of everybody knows everybody and everybody looks out for everybody. So I really, from a young age, I suppose from that experience of my life, I really took solitude in stories. I loved reading autobiographies. I would go to the local um, library. I used to remember going after school. I would take out maximum amount of books, which was 10 at the time. And I would read. I would read all of these stories about all of these amazing people. And I never saw myself as having any kind of story, but I was always just like, wow, you know, these stories make people. And one of the stories that was always a pivotal story for me was it's a book called Chinese Cinderella. And it's about this young girl who goes through turmoil and she perseveres. And I remember reading that as a young girl and I thought, wow, you know, she, that's an amazing story. Maybe I can persevere. And me and my brother were very different in the respect that I was your textbook box ticker. I went to school, I got good grades, I had planned to go to college. My brother on the other spectrum was chaotic. And I mean that in a good sense because he loved music. He didn't follow the rules. He had this wisdom about him for such a young person about his philosophies on life and how worry really just impacts you so negatively and you can't control anything beyond yourself. And for me, I didn't understand that, not, not until he died. And so leading up, I, I, I wanted to do something with my life, but I didn't know what. And I decided that I would go and do marine and plant engineering, which was completely, you know, off the wall. <laughs> I woke up one day and thought, I'll do some marine and plant engineering. That seemed like a good thing for a girl in Cork to do. What was the connection with marine and plant engineering? Was there anybody you knew or any relation? No, it was actually a friend of mine was in the same class as me and he really wanted to do it. And I was kind of looking for a course and I was like, oh, I need something a bit challenging. I want to do something different, something, you know, that with a sense of adventure. And so his cousin went there and he invited us to go to the open day. He's going to show us around. Yeah. So I walked in and I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. But now they sold it in a way that was like, oh, you can do firefighting, sea survival. This is your life. When the reality is, it's not, it's not <laughs> like that. <laughs> they completely oversold it. A hundred percent. And so I put it down in my CAO. It was the only thing I wanted to do. I got it. I was delighted. And off I went to college. And if you know, as you would know, a military or Navy type background, it's, it's a man's world. And from the first day that I walked into those college doors, one of the things that I was very conscious of was the fact that I was a woman. And this was going to be a theme throughout the whole time that I was there and beyond that. So the lads had to work 100%. I had to work 150. Wow. And, you know, it was always on the forefront of that. What also tended to happen was that the environment, the seafarer environment, um, sometimes can be quite masculine and very toxic in a certain way. You know, you don't show emotion. You don't cry. You get on with your job. And that's it. So on top of me being a woman, I put on this other layer on top of me as well, because I, I didn't want to show emotion because I knew that the first thing they would say is you're a woman. Of course, you're going to cry. You can't be as strong as us. So going through college was difficult, but I proved myself and I was always proving myself. Now, that didn't come without trouble. I failed. I failed my final year. I was devastated, you know. I, I just I just knew that they were like, oh, of course you failed. Sure, this is no job for a woman. But I came back. I came back, did the final year, and I was one exam away, and I just kept on failing that exam. I did that exam seven times before I passed. Wow. But I did. Wow. I just to stay with that for a minute. So that final exam, you retook it seven times. I, I'd say that's resilience. <laughs> that is true resilience uh, what, did stubbornness. what did you learn from that that the fact that you you failed it you retook it you failed it you retook it and so it went on until you eventually passed. what did that give you in life that you've you've drawn on that experience I think that from my understanding from my learning of doing that 
that sometimes that I realize that the only thing that stands in the way of myself and my goals can sometimes be me. And for me to, you know, get my act together, keep trying and eventually I will get it. Mm, I love that. Okay, T take us on further. So you, you passed this, you're in a machismo world, uh, probably misogynistic as well and vulgar and rude and a bit toxic, but you decided to hang in there because you've started, so you're going to finish. Um, what happened next? Um, I graduated in 2015, had my degree, my graduation day. It was perfect. And four days later, I went to sea. I joined the Irish Ferries, Oscar Wilde. I was 22 at the time. I had never been to sea. I knew nobody on the ship. I was out of my depth and I was brought in. This is your cabin. This is where you're going to work. These are your hours. And I met the crew the following day. It was 15 um, engineers, men, not the boys that I was used to. And for them to see a woman in an engine room, it was, it was, like, it was like seeing a unicorn. They didn't understand it. They didn't know why I'd be an engineer and nobody would talk to me. It was quite evident that nobody wanted to, you know, to be associated with me. And for a couple of weeks, every day I would come in there, they would ask me, why are you an engineer? You're a woman. Your place is to mind children at home. It's not to be in the what? engine. You joke me. And this is in 2015. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and jokes about why women wear white because that's what domestic appliances color it comes in or some crass comments like that that is just I can't believe that level of misogynism yeah it's there and now this is I suppose a generational perhaps a thing that has been passed through but I suppose my own naivety as well because I was 22 and I thought you know oh we're we're totally over that we all have equal rights and we all have equal experiences but I was quickly I quickly learned that that was not the case God, I'm really sorry about that. I just, I can't believe that level of just um, bias and uh, utter lack of diversity and inclusion. I'm sure they haven't done any diversity and inclusion training, have they? <laughs> Maybe if they had, it's, I think, a box ticking exercise because if you speak to any woman that has been at sea, she will have a story just like mine to match in a different context. Yeah. It's it's way behind the rest of the world, isn't it? The sea. Yeah, sadly. Yeah. Man of the sea and all this kind of imagery that they try and promote. Okay, so you're on this ferry, um, 22 years old. No one's talking to you. Um, talk about trying to run you off the ship. I mean, <laughs> if nothing else did. I think I'd probably have quit at that stage. Did you quit or did you stay on? Nope, I stayed on and persevered. I had gotten this far in my career, my life. This was everything I wanted. So, you know, it was just another hurdle that I had to jump over. And with time, they accepted me. They understood that I could do my job. And they were really great guys. You know, I, I never have anything bad to say about them. It's just that mentality, you know, that whole toxic macho man mentality that they have. Hmm. So... Here I am sailing my dreams. Um, I came home for New Year's for one week in 2015. I had spent Christmas on the ship, so I was away from my family. And my mum and Alex, they had gone to Spain, um, just the two of them. Had a great time by the looks of it. And so I came home in New Year's. I met my brother one afternoon. It was the last day that I was at home. I was going back to work the following day. And my brother had just moved to the Cork City. He was always dreaming about leaving the small town. You know, he was an 18 year old out here to make money, his own world, everything. So he had just gotten a job. He was very proud of that fact. Um, and he said that he was going to be late to meet me. And I remember thinking, oh, gosh, I have to go back to sea. I have to travel. You know, I'll catch him another time. But I said, look, I'm here now. I'll meet you. So I waited and I met him in Cork. We have this glow Ferris wheel. It's this big thing that comes every Christmas. And I remember standing there and I hadn't seen my brother for maybe two months at this stage. And I looked over at the bridge and I saw this guy walking. My brother was very unmissable because he was six foot seven. He was a giant. Like he, was a, he was a huge man. And I saw this guy and I was like, oh, my God, who is that? 
And then I realized that that was Alex. And we had the encounter, it lasted about 10 minutes. We walked right through Cork City. I walked him to the bridge and I said, I'll see you later. And we hugged. And that was the last time I'd see him. And it was such a nice memory to have because we weren't fighting. <laughs> so I'm <laughs> thankful for that. <laughs> and a week later, I was working. We were pulling into Rosslear Harbour. I was standing out looking at port and my phone rang. I was just getting ready to go to the engine room and my mum was on the line and she said, Alex is in CUH, which is the hospital here. He's in critical condition. And she hung up and I'll never forget hearing those words. For me, as a sibling, this was the worst possible thing that could have happened. I spent my whole life, you know, protecting him, sheltering him. And here he was. And I, you know, I left, went to my own type thing. He was living his own life. And for me, it was just a wash of guilt as well, because I left and something happened to him. So I remember coming down to the engine room. I sat in disbelief and one of the engineers said, are you okay? And I said, my brother's in hospital. And he said, oh my God. And I said, yeah, I, I, I got to go. I rang my mother. She said, get off the ship. You have to come home now. So I did. And I remember running to chief, the chief engineer's cabin, which is on deck eight and I'm on deck five. And it felt like I was running for years. I thought I would never get there. And when I did, I couldn't say anything. I just said, I have to get off me. And I traveled for two and a half hours. I had no reception, I had nothing. So I knew nothing of what was happening. And the only thought I had was that, I hope he doesn't die. I hope I see him. I hope I get to be with him. And as I walk into the hospital, we have the national news on TV. It's one o'clock lunchtime news. I walk in, I see my mother, I look at the TV and my brother's face is on the news. And I just remember thinking, what is happening? You know, nobody told me anything. And the nurse said, you know, you want to come in and see your brother? I said, of course. And she said, prepare yourself. I've never been to the ICU, so I don't know what it's like. And I walked in and saw Alex for the first time and he was hooked up to every machine. He was not breathing. He wasn't doing anything. She told me that he had taken a substance at a party. And unfortunately, my brother had a cardiac arrest. He was found in the middle of the floor, clutching to his chest, gasping for air. And then it took the paramedics 10 minutes to resuscitate him. So when I got there, it was up to him then to wake up. As the days progressed, we're just getting worse and worse news. You know, my brother's brain was the big issue here. Nothing was working. What made it so difficult at the time was that the whole world was watching. Mm. The story was everywhere and it was so public that you didn't get any room to think. You would, we were just constantly making decisions day in, day out. And then on Friday, my brother was pronounced brain dead, which was so difficult to understand. Mm. And I always say this to people, which is really strange for me to say it, but when I left that room and I went out to get some air, I, there was a sense of horror, panic, but also a sense of relief. And when I say relief, I mean that in the sense of we had an answer. Mm. So much worse being in the uncertain space. Mm. And that was really it. Wow. Uh, and how did, how did you pick yourself up from that? I guess we got, we made a decision to make my brother an organ donor, which is one thing that we're really proud of because he continues to help people beyond his grave. And for me, I hit rock bottom. Everything I had worked towards my whole life, it was always me against him. I planned everything meticulously. I looked for every, I, every possible outcome I had covered besides this one. And I never saw it coming. And I, I, I had nothing, nothing anymore. I spent a few weeks 
just drinking heavily because it was something that I was were Irish, <laughs> their go-to therapy. But yeah, I was in a very dark and bad place. And I hated how people looked at me. I hated how people, you know, people were doing their only best. For me, the world stopped, but the world continued everywhere else. And I was just stuck in this place. And I decided one day that I had to do something because if I didn't use all this pain that I have for some sort of a purpose, I wouldn't be alive. I wouldn't be here talking to you. Yeah, yeah. And thank God you are, um, because uh, you've really turned something around. That's one hell of a story. I, I haven't heard one like it. And um, really after that, um, it, it's hard to, uh, hard to ask any other questions, actually, but I, I will, and I hope you will bear with me as I do. I think... Knowing that, you know, you're 27 now, but looking back at yourself when you were 18, during that time, with all the experiences you've had, what bit of advice would you give young people who are 18 or to your young self from what you've learned now in the, in the nine intervening years? Don't be so quick to grow up. Don't be so quick. To... Yeah. I was always so quick to grow up. I was always looking ahead and I didn't enjoy the time that I had at the time. It's very true, isn't it? It's about being present. And, and do you do mindfulness and meditation? I do breathing. Yeah. At the moment, I'm starting to. I'm not, I find it very difficult sometimes, but in my own personal, that I'm studying to be an addiction counsellor, it's something that I'm becoming more conscious of. Yeah. Yeah, well, I... Um... I'm a big fan. Um, I do, I'm on 20 minutes a morning and I have 10 minutes during the day and probably 10 minutes at night before I go to sleep. And I do about 30 minutes of yoga every other day. And I, I wasn't doing it until really, I don't know, about three months ago. So my advice is persist. And you're, you're a person, I get the impression, who persists <laughs> seven, seven times doing your finals. I think that's persistence. So breathing is great. What's the technique you use with breathing? For me, I, I find it very therapeutic to use my hands. So I place my hand on my chest and one in my stomach. Mm -hmm. And I would just sit and I would breathe in through my nose and out through my mouth and really just try and connect my mind to my body. Yeah. Well, then I, th I think it won't be too difficult to transition for you to move to, to mindfulness and Speaking with 10, 10 minutes, I find the, the app uh, Headspace is, is very good. I also have Calm. But one of the, I, I'm, I've read a lot around breathing and I find very interesting the, the have you done alternate nasal breathing? Have you come across this? No. This is very fun. <clears throat> so you, you breathe in through one nostril. He's just trying to speak at the same time and out. And then you, you swap it to the other, but you just, breathing in and out through one, then in and out through the other. And, and there's something about the two sides of the nasal passage, which is deeply calming. The other technique for you to practice, there's a whole two books I've read, Breath, um, uh, I think of the guy who wrote Breath, and then there's uh, Patrick McEwan's book, The Oxygen Advantage. And nasal breathing is the way to do it. So when I train in the gym or whatever, it's always nasal breathing and um, not mouth. Um, because that's also much calmer. If you do in for four, hold for seven, out for eight, in for four, hold for seven, out for eight. It's a great way of firing up the parasympathetic nervous system to calm yourself. So sometimes before, if I'm going on a, a call that I find a little anxious making, or I'm feeling I'm imposter syndrome, that who am I to be on this call? Then I, I try some breathing techniques and I find those are very helpful. Okay, so we've got a great bit of advice there. Don't rush to grow up too fast and being present and breathing and things like that. Um, you've seen the inspiring leadership compass and the elements of it, the eight elements. Let's just go around and just bring that, wrap that into your life and in, in the work you do um, helping others. What about MQ, which is morals, 
you, you know, your integrity, your values that you aspire to live by. And, and what do you do when you let them slip and how do you bring yourself back onto track again? A bit like you're breathing when you're trying to focus a bit. I guess some of my morals and values would always be, number one is always honesty. Mm. I'm a big believer in being honest, which leads into the most important thing that I've learned through this journey, which is being the authentic self and how if I'm authentic, it allows other people to let their guard down and also be authentic and create connections. Um, those human connections, you know, not just work connections. Um, and when I think about letting it slip, which I've done many times, you know, I've not been true to myself, not been true to who I was and who I am. And for me, there's always, it's always a trigger in my internal, my body will always let me know when it's like the cold, quick, quit it. You're lying. You're lying to yourself. <laughs> and it's trying to get my mind to connect back to my body, which I think a lot of the time, all of us, well, not all of us, but a lot of people don't have that connect and they don't truly understand how your mind can override your body and you're not listening to that space that you're in and your yeah. body's telling you one thing, but your head is going the opposite way. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Lee and I have four children from our two previous marriages to each, and they're all the same kind of age as you. And I do think you, you have a maturity beyond your years, uh, for which I congratulate you. Um, hard fought, hard won, whether it be on uh, with the ships or whether it be the charity work you're doing. Um, and and I, I was thinking next about PQ, meaning and purpose, and why you do what you do. So tell me what, what gives your life now uh, a calling, a sense of meaning and purpose. My puppy's having a little squeak in the corner and uh, my wife's just popped her head around the corner. Hi, Lee. And um, uh, so, yeah, what, what, gives, what gives you your calling and your vocation, Nicole? I think I'm lucky. I'm very lucky in life in the sense that when I always say that my brother saved five people, not just four, he saved me. A lot of people don't get a chance to find their true purpose or their true calling in life. Some can spend years trying to find that and never find it. When he died, he allowed me to see, the situation allowed me to see that I was always a dreamer, one of those girls that I was like, oh, I can change the world maybe. But I always was stunted by fear, fear of what others think, fear of what I think about myself, feeling not good enough, all of those things that we feel as humans. And when my brother died, I saw that, you know, I, my greatest fear had come to life. And the only way from rock bottom is up. Yeah. So my purpose now is, it's just to help other people to access those stories, to understand that only you can save yourself. You know, we can all be victims and that's absolutely fine. You're allowed to be a victim, but you're not allowed to stay that way. That's a very good way of thinking. You're allowed to be a victim, but you're not allowed to stay that way. Because I, I think that's, when I think of tough times that people I've coached or whatever, the healthiest way is to recognize that, that they've been in a bad place and particularly the, the, the women we help in the Inspiring Leadership Trust that run by my wife. But don't let them stay there because then you can wallow in that, can't you? It can be like a big muddy pit that you never get out. Exactly, exactly. And it happens to a lot of people and it can happen very quickly or very slowly. But, you know, you can't let your circumstances define you. Yeah. You can define it. Yeah. No, that's very true. You're not defined by your circumstances. And um, I think of one girl, Georgia, who came and spoke at a big event Lee did. And um, they, they told the story about the abuse that she'd been through. And uh, people were shocked by it. And then she came up on stage and they went, this is Georgia. And they went, wow. And like, she coming to talk about this and she's 19. And her opening words were, as you said, I'm not defined by my past. It doesn't define me. It's not who I am. It's, it's who I choose to be, the choices that I make. Mm -hmm. That's very powerful. Thank you, Nicole. Um, so really the third area around the Inspiring Leadership Compass, what makes people high performing is health quotient, uh, an area that you've 
learned a lot about mental health and physical health and addiction is obviously part of that. We were, a lot of people are addicted to working or they're addicted to something. And uh, I know my, my, you know, people who are close to me um, in a previous, in a previous life, um, alcoholic uh, relatives, not in my current life and people who, if they start a bottle of something, they can't, they can't put it down. They have to finish it, a whole bottle of whiskey or wine or whatever their addiction is. But um, how do you keep yourself physically and mentally healthy? And what do you do when you let it slip? And how do you get yourself back on or advise others? I think for me, um, this has been a journey and it's going to be a lifelong journey. I first went to therapy um, about two years after my brother died. And I'm very skeptical. I'm a very, you know, logical, no-nonsense type person. And because I started the course that I am finishing this year, it was part of a requirement. If you want to be an addiction counsellor, the mantra is you can't help anybody if you can't help yourself. Yeah. So for the first time, I was confronted with going to therapy and looking at myself and looking at what, what am I... What are my emotions? How do I feel? And who really am I? And that's been a journey in its own. You know, it's there. Because if you're self-aware, you can react better to certain situations. You can, you know, understand yourself, why you're feeling certain feelings. What Mm. is that anxiety about? So for me, it's all about becoming that self-aware person. I'm at the beginning, but I have a lot more to go, you know, and I'm no expert by any means, but I understand how I start. Like, if I can understand myself, I can help others understand themselves, too. Yeah. And and it's it's a long journey. I mean, I'm almost 59, approaching 60. I'm still learning. I'm work in progress. And uh, with such hard stories to tell and so, so deep conversation that we've had a bit of light humor to 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 raise our spirits um i I remember someone was talking about a a chap who's being interviewed by a dj on a radio show and he went in and the guy said so who are you and he thought either this guy's an idiot and i've come to the wrong show he doesn't know who i am or this is very deep it's like who are you you know well i'm a I'm a father, I'm a husband, but, but really, who am I? Good question. So that's a, that's a question you could have a discussion about for years. IQ is the next one round. And, and this is like, it's, it's you know, interesting enough, do you know the IQ test? Roger Stiers, friend of mine, told me that the guy who was designing it died before he'd finished the work on it. He was really doing the work to try and show there are multiple intelligences. And, and those were just they were very important and IQ wasn't the really important one at all, but he died before he'd finished his work and others grabbed hold of IQ and they went, Oh, this is the, the solution for everything. We need people who are very high IQ. Well, you've seen the problems of that. No EQ or no, none of the other in- multiple intelligences that they have. And, and now we've got, you know, super rich, smart people, smart in the IQ sense, but they're only good enough to pass an IQ test. It doesn't help them with anything else in life. Um, making some appalling decisions. So I don't want IQ just to be about that. It's about more wisdom and judgment I, I use this area of. And, and who have you got as your sort of the board you can't afford, that group of people who give you advice, Nicole, as you, you, you've set up this limited company, Alex's Adventure, and, and tell people what, what the company does, but, but who, who are the people who give you advice and help you? Is it just you on your own or have you got more helping you? Um, I have loads of people helping me, but it is primarily myself and another um, colleague of mine, Thomas, who is just phenomenal. And what I've learned is that I've built my business on a story, which seems sometimes like when I think about it, I'm like, all I had was a story. I didn't have any kind of investments. I didn't have anything. I figured it all out for myself as I went along. And that was one of my key learnings too, is that you can do anything and you can learn it as you go along. You don't have to have all the answers at the start. That's a very, um, yeah, I like that. Exactly. So I have a couple of people that I go to all the time. You know, there are people in business, people in emotional intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. But what I 
really love doing is learning from anybody that I meet because everybody has a lesson to teach me if I'm just willing to stop and listen to them. Yeah, and, and talking about stopping and listening to me, I need to stop listening to my puppy who just needs to be left out the door. Stay with me for a moment. <laughs> there you go. He's a lovely, he's a lovely little um, working cocker, a little brown working cocker spaniel called Archie. And uh, he, he normally keeps me good company here, but he, he could hear my wife outside and was desperate to get to her. So, oh, and he's really having a bit. <laughs> um, the next area is EQ, emotional and social intelligence. Um, how have you built your skills of rapport, of listening, of influence, of emotional and social intelligence? What, what have you done? How have you learned along the way at such a young age? I think there's been a couple of components, you know, um, academically I've learned about it. Um, but actually being in situations where I understood and intuitively, I think you can, you have, we don't give our intuition a lot of credit. I don't think sometimes, you know, that gut feeling that we all have. Um, but yeah, I think it's just by, by taking that time to listen to people um, because there's a big difference between empathy and sympathy, as you know, and as I've said to you earlier, and it's about recognizing when you're being sympathetic and when you're being empathetic. And just so, explain to those listening your your definition of the difference of the two and, and which is the most important one to, to master. Um, so sympathy would be kind of, let's say, for instance, you know, you had a really tragic event and I was like, Jonathan, um, I'm really sorry about that, but at least you still have your dog. <laughs> you know, let's look at the other things that you, you know, but at least that's, that's kind of when you know you're using sympathy, when you're comparing the situation to something else or to another thing. Whereas if I was being empathetic, I would say, Jonathan, that's awful. And I don't know how it feels, but I'm here if you need to talk. It's recognizing that the person, you know, is going through whatever they are going through. And while sometimes you might not know personally, you can still be there for the person. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes people miss those two or mix them up together. Yeah, it's, it's beautifully described. And the other thing, which isn't an, an error we make, and, and I make this one and have to keep watching myself, particularly as an interviewer, I'm trying to connect with someone and they'll tell me a story and I go, oh yeah, well, I had something similar to that. But actually, no, stop your story. It's not about your story. It's about them. And, and, and I, I learned, learned to do it because I wanted to show a connection with people, but actually I didn't realize how disrespectful it is, is you're making it more about you than you are about the other person. Have you seen that happen? This is Ireland. This happens all the time, every day, on a daily basis. So <laughs> you'll fit right in. <laughs> yeah, we were laughing with Lee when we went over to a family gathering in Bundoran in Donegal. And there were 40 or 50 people in the room. It was a din. It was just, it was, I could hardly hear myself think. And I go, what's going on? They go, oh, they're all meeting each other. But and I said, no one's listening to each other. No, no, they're, they're sort of listening in a roundabout way, but they're just telling each other different stories. And, and it's just great fun, but it, it's crazy. Um, resilience, uh, RQ is the next one. Um, how have you picked yourself up in times of adversity? And you've had a lot of adversity. And, and what gives you the resilience to get through? You've talked about resilience a lot. So you, you've clearly got something that's quite special here and what could others learn from what you've learned at such an early age i think one of the best ways that i've heard um resilience i suppose talked about and just described is when i go back to that book that i mentioned this chinese cinderella in it it's about what's, what's the book called again chinese cinderella it's chinese by cinderella. adeline um yen mei it's a phenomenal story a true story too and the way she describes it is that one positive dream is worth a thousand negative realities. And if we have that one thing that we hold on to, dear to our hearts, that means the world to us, we have a purpose, we have the drive, and we can get through anything. Because at the end of the day, 
life is for living and it's for I believe teaching us some sort of lessons you know people always say you know life isn't fair all this kind of stuff life isn't supposed to be fair nobody said it was but it's about it's a series of I suppose lessons or tasks or how you want to live it but it is recognizing that the world doesn't owe me anything and it is up to me to make the world my own that is so good and I remember reading The Road Less Traveled by Scott Peck and it begins with life is difficult and when you accept it's difficult it isn't difficult anymore just if you just get over it life is difficult it's not fair um no one ever said it would be and and I don't know about you but I found great comfort in stoical philosophy um and I read the daily stoic every morning I listen to it because I'm dyslexic so I, I I listen to it and um it 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 really is about controlling the controllables. The only thing you can control is your own thoughts and your own actions. I can't control what you do, Nicole, what my dog does, um, what my wife does, definitely. Husbands cannot control what their wife does. Don't even begin. And, um, but, but I can control how I think about situations. So, so difficult situations will arise. I can't control those situations, but I can control how I respond to it. So it's stimulus and response. Is, is that what you've, experienced and also read about a hundred percent and i've seen it in my own journey as well um when i was thinking about you know quitting or i was faced with a challenge and i went down the spiral of thinking about all the negatives everything that wasn't going right and i was fixated on that instead of looking at what is right and what can i control i was so fixated at controlling my surroundings that i didn't realize that I can never do that. That's beyond my control, but I can control my own self. And everything changed when I started to recognize that. Yeah. I, I think it's profound. Say a bit more about that. There's this whole thing about controlling the controllables and, and letting go of what you have no control over. Cause I'm sure that must be massively helpful in the addiction field. It is. It is. And just in my own personal life, I was very, um, I'm very controlled as a person. So my emotions were always controlled my life was always controlled. I lived it in a straight line. No chaos, no thank you. And even when I started Zen Alex Adventure, I still wanted to try and control things. And I didn't recognize until I got to a place, I think it was two years in, and I was kind of like, oh God, nothing's going right. I remember one, one of the things that wasn't going right is that I had no office. I didn't have an office space. Um, I thought I needed an office. But, you know, at the time I thought I did. So I was like, I don't, don't have any money. I don't have any um, space. I don't know where to get an office. What am I going to do? I can't continue working. All because of an office space. So I remember I was just going down the spiral. And in myself, in my mental, I was strained. I was tired. I was like, oh, I just, I'm just going to give up. This, this is just too tough. And then I sat down in my brother's room, where I'm currently. And I said you know what, Nicole, get over it. Just get on with life. What can you do? Stop talking about all the things you can't and what can you do? And my brother's room was empty. He wasn't here anymore. So I said, okay, let me try and turn this into a home space, a home office. So I did put a call out. I was looking for a desk and it so happened that my friend was giving away a desk. So I was like, great. So I got a desk, I got a chair his room, I remodeled, I printed some pictures and everything was just so easy after that. Cool. And that was what I could control. That's such a good story. You're, you're a great storyteller, by the way, I must say. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking about the, in our lives, uh, we're, I, I think we're sold a lie, certainly at school from perhaps the establishment teachers that, that you know, you're going to begin here and you're going to have this you know, life through, you know, all the qualifications and university and onto the first job and marriage and uh, just constantly going up the, up the stairs or up the slope. But actually you have that and then you go down there and then you go up here and you go down there and you have all these transitions in life. And people try and forget about the transition and they then focus on the other bits between the transitions. But actually there's a marvelous book, which I commend to you, which I listened to called Life is in the Transitions. And the person gathering the stories, he would gather people's stories. And people's stories are fantastic. Your story is an amazing one. Uh, and and it's, 
in the transitions that life really happens, that you learn the most. I've made many mistakes. I've had more failures than successes. And I've learned a huge amount of the failures, huge amount. And I think even in your short time, you, you've learned and you've picked yourself back up. And I, I, I commend you for that. It really is very inspiring. Um, brand, quotient. What, what have you learned by way of feedback from people? And are you willing to let it come in and, and act on the feedback that you get to improve your brand, your reputation, your image, your impact, the brand of you, Nicole Ryan, and also of Alex's Ventures? Um, tell me. Oh, all the time. I, I love getting feedback. And that's not just something that I'm saying, because I always know that there's room for improvement. Uh, even in myself, I can't be the best person in the world because that's just impossible. And we're always learning and there's always somebody else around me that can teach me something. And by giving me that feedback at the beginning, it was, of course, hard again, because I'm young and I'm like, oh, I can do this. I can save the world. It doesn't matter what you say. <laughs> but I have learned that, you know, there's value in the, in the feedback that I get, be it critical, constructive, Sometimes maybe it's just downright negative and destructive, but they're still learning in that for me. Um, and for me to be able to sit with it and then take the time to process it is one of the things that I've learned over time. Because, you know, we all have those moments where we get an email and we're like, oh my God, I'm going to respond to this person straight away. I'm going to say what I need to say really, really quickly. And then you make, you, you don't process. Whereas if you walk away, take an hour, come back, you feel differently about the situation. Yeah, so, so good. Someone said to me, if you can imagine that you've got a football or a basketball and you're playing, throwing it around between a group, uh, imagine that the, the basketball is feedback. And if someone throws it at you and you put your arms out there and it whacks you in the stomach, it's going to really hurt you and you're not ready for it. But if you catch it, thank you, always thank you, whatever the feedback is, however tough it is. And you just sort of look at it a bit, examine it and just decide whether you're gonna literally absorb it and go, thank you, I, I accept that. Or you go in the basket, no, that's, that's not for me. I, thank you for your feedback. But you, then you can reflect over it, an hour, a day. Let me think about that, get back to you tomorrow. Appreciate that feedback and but people need to have, think about feedback, whether it really is feedback or it's just plain criticism. Because, you know, talking about what worked, we talk about WWEBI. I can't even say that. I haven't had my wine yet. But what's working well, talk about what worked well, and then follow it with even better if, EBI. And it's a great little double act. What worked well, even better if. And you can have an after action review. When something's happened, had a meeting with a potential donor to your organization, so what worked well about that? And what could we make even better for next time? So you constantly learning in these after action reviews. I find that very helpful. Does that resonate yeah. in some ways? 100%. I love, I love the phrase of it even, you know? It's not saying, oh, what went well and what went wrong. It's, it's not about what went wrong. It's what can be improved. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that is such a, you know, words create worlds. Uh, I've done a whole lot of research around neuro-linguistic programming, but, but be careful in the language we use because our words create worlds for us to live in. Like, as you were saying, you know, you can be a victim, but don't stay a victim. And um, how you describe yourself um, is really key. A and not to ignore things that have gone on in your life, but focus on what is working because reality has the things that does work as well as the things that are difficult, but what would make it even better gives you control back power to make it better, to think differently about it, to take some action, to improve it and to learn. You either succeed or you learn something is what Nelson Mandela always used to say. We're coming towards the end of, of our time, but we've got a, a, a one, 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 which is highly relevant. One, one, uh, which is LQ. Uh, legacy, uh, sustainability, leaving a different stewardship, looking after things. We don't own things, but we're just starting something out which we'll be passing on to others. What would you 
like your legacy to be during your lifetime? I mean, you've got a lot of life left. Um, we, we definitely hope. We never know how long we've got. We've got today, but we don't know what tomorrow might bring. But what, what would you like your legacy to be in your work and in your personal life? I think in my work and my personal life, they're pretty much the same. And it's for me to use the skills, the gifts, the whatever that I have to help other people realize how special they are. I love stories. I love storytelling. I love the power that that harnesses. And I don't think a lot of people use that or understand the potential. And it would just be my legacy to be able to make a difference in somebody's life so that they can say, you know, Nicole Ryan, she once did this. And because she said this or did this, you know, it, it made me better. And I went and did, went for it just to be an inspiration to other people who may come from similar, worse, better circumstances to show them that you are, you are really the master of your own soul and your own adventure and your own journey. So don't stay a victim. Hmm. Go for it. That's, that's wonderful. And, and so for people who are listening, Nicole, who businessmen, businesswomen, and um, they've all had successful lives and um, they're thinking they want to give back either of their skills or their resources or some of their time or money. How can they get in touch with, with the charity and what it does and, and what, are you, what support are you looking for? Um, I suppose myself personally, um, Alex's Adventure is always looking for people who are interested in helping educate young people. Um, for me, that's one of my passions because the youth are the future. They're going to be the ones that lead tomorrow. So it's about, you know, if you're interested in helping sponsoring schools, uh, getting in contact with me through the website, which is alexsadventure.ie, um, and just seeing how we can collaborate together to make a better impact within our communities and societies. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Nicole, thank you. We're gonna do a top tip in a minute, but I just want to say thank you. It's been great having you on the series and uh, you, you certainly are an inspiring leader already at the age of 27. So I, I, I'm gonna be watching with fascination how the rest of your life goes on, uh, but the difference that you make to people, thank you for what you did and for turning a family tragedy into help for other people. That's a real inspiration to me and I'm sure to the many others that lifting in, listening in 50 countries around the world. So thank you, Nicole. Thank you very much, Anthony. It's been a pleasure. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you gonna do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.